Hey, everybody. Welcome to a brand new season of Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by our Sunday School teacher extraordinaire, Dr. Scott Powell. Scott, I'm so excited about this season of Sunday School. I am too, J.D. We've had, uh, um, I'm, I'm really grateful, first of all, that people have listened to the previous seasons. We talked about the Gospel of Mark. We had our little Advent mini-season uh, and I'm just grateful that anybody's tuning in. So thank you for coming back, everybody. Well, this season of Sunday School, yeah, it's really great to have you. It's really great to be with you, Dr. Powell. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's really great to be with you too, listeners. I I think you know that I love you. Um, and uh, and this well, season... It wouldn't hurt you to say it once in a while. <laughs> and this season of Sunday School is all about the Psalms. Uh, yes. A part of Scripture I think that all of us are familiar with, many of us are familiar with, because if we're practicing Catholics, we hear the Psalms at Mass, perhaps we even pray the divine office, the prayers yeah. of the church, and we regularly pray the Psalms. Maybe we have some Psalms memorized, but there's a way in which we can be familiar with the Psalms and still have so much to learn about their depth, the fullness of their meaning, what yeah. they express, and their place, I think, in the life of um, the history of the people of God. And by that, yeah. I mean the history of the church and also the history of the people of Israel. And so um, this season, we will bring you five episodes that delve into the text of the Psalms. But before we do that, we're going to spend this kind of introductory episode just talking about what the Psalms are, where they belong, kind of in the place of Scripture, and and some of the preliminary things that will really help us to dive in in our next episodes. Is that is that right, Scott? Yeah, I, th- I think that sounds right. And I, I think it's an appropriate way to begin because, uh, for, for me, I think there's sort of a paradox um, about the Psalms. And I think probably for a lot of folks, the Psalms are kind of paradoxical. And by that I mean, on the one hand, the Psalms don't come across as intimidating in a certain sense, right? They're 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 approachable. They're not complicated. You don't need to understand all the stuff like maybe Paul's letters of all the historical context of these cities. Yeah, because they express certain things, praise, lament, things which are common to our experience and things which I think come across in the poetic kind of character of the Psalms. Yeah, they're also short, relatively speaking. So it feels like you can just kind of dive in and just read a psalm and kind of enter in. And they're they're they have yeah, so you don't need necessarily the the background of like Paul's letters. They're not confusing like a Leviticus or a Deuteronomy and cumbersome. So there there's something, I think by design, by the way, that's inviting about the Psalms. They're they're purposely broken up into small pieces because I think they're a little bit more digestible. And so to enter into the Psalms doesn't take much work. You can literally just crack open your Bible and you can say, I want to pray over scripture. I'll open up a psalm and I can read a couple of them. Yeah, and in fact, we do, in in our family, part of our bedtime routine is that we just, we have a little kind of book of the Psalms and we read a couple of Psalms to the children, like as they're, as part of our prayer routine at bedtime. And it's been, yeah, and my kind of hope has always been that it would sort of, that, you know, they're falling asleep, but my kind of, the Psalms seem to me to be a thing that I've often wished, and I think people who pray the breviary have this perhaps more, but I've often wished I sort of had them at my disposal, in my heart, in my memory, in my recollection, so that I, because they give expression to things which are part of the human experience, or at least the experience for people who are believers. It's a funny thing that you say that, and I actually wasn't going to talk about this, but I want to read, maybe it'd, it'd be good for a starting point just to actually dive into one of the Psalms, but because of what you just said, I actually want to turn, first of all, to Psalm number 119. And uh, I have a, a class of seminarians right now where I teach, and I actually ask them as their first assignment to memorize this psalm. Before we do that, could you talk for our listeners a little bit? When you say Psalm 119, can you talk a little bit about the numbering? Maybe people are looking at different Bibles. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's not something I want anybody to stress about. 
in um, some, some little brackets next to many of the psalms, there'll be kind of a, a different number. And it has to do with the manuscript tradition as far as the Hebrew version of the text is slightly different than the Greek Septuagint version. And the Septuagint actually combines a couple of the psalms. And so the numbering based on what the original manuscript was gets a little thrown off. We, we, we could get kind of deep into the weeds of manuscript issues and how things are divided up. But, but suffice it to say... For most of our English translation Bibles that are based on the Septuagint, the numbering is what we're going to be doing right now. So okay. Psalm 119, and again, in, in a little bracket next to it, some versions are Psalm 118. And again, it's because there are one or two Psalms that are lumped together earlier okay. than this. Than okay. not but m- for most of our listeners, when you say Psalm 19, the Bible they turn to is going to be Psalm 119. 119. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah for, for the most part. Okay. For the most part. But if yours isn't, you'll be able to tell Just because... read the next one. It'll be the next one. <laughs> yeah. It won't sound like this, and it'll be the next one. Yeah, okay, exactly okay. right. Yeah, but I, I, it says this. It says uh, it begins by saying, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimony, who seek them with their whole heart. It talks about what it means to be a righteous person. Um, but I want to jump down to verse 9, and it says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to thy word. With my whole heart I will seek thee. Let me not wander away from my commandments, because I have laid up thy word in my heart so that I may not sin against thee. And I ask my, my seminarians in this particular class to memorize that psalm because the psalm by its own definition says, if you want to be righteous, if you want to cease from sinning, if you want to be protected from temptation to sin in the future, memorize the scriptures, yeah. put them into your heart. And I, I, I think of Jesus uh, in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan, by the evil one after his baptism. What is Jesus's recourse to every one of the evil one's temptation? It is scripture that he's memorized. Yeah. Now he doesn't use the Psalms in that case, he uses Deuteronomy. But it speaks to uh, the tradition where the Psalms come from. In the world of Jesus, Jesus would have been raised not only to read and to know and to sing the Psalms, but to memorize the Psalter. Mm. And he would have laid up these words in his heart. So I think what your desire is, is right. And that's the Psalms are by design meant to be something that is not just read. They're meant to be proclaimed. They're meant to be sung and they're meant to be memorized. Yeah. Those are the three functions of the Psalms. Yeah. Um, which I want to come back to in actually just a second. So, okay. so hang on to that thought. But back to that kind of initial paradox about the Psalms. So because of all these things, and if, if you're going to memorize a chunk of Scripture, the Psalms are a good place to start because, again, they're fairly bite-sized. They're digestible. And so you can pick up the Bible. You can, you can read a couple to your kids at night. These are, these are profoundly good and holy things. But on the flip side of that, and on the other hand, the downside is I think that few of us really realize the greater purpose that the Psalms are doing, both within Scripture and as a whole. Mm. Because they're so kind of digestible and bite-sized, you can just kind of jump in and pick one up. They're accessible. Many of us don't consider what their context is. What, what are they doing in salvation history? Why are they the way that they are in the Bible? Why are they arranged in the order that they're arranged in. They're not chronological. They're not even quite thematic. And so the ordering uh, is there for a purpose because I believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God and without error. So it leads us to ask the question, why do they look the way that they look? They're right. divided up in books. Right. So the Psalter is the, the giant book that we call the, the 150 Psalms. Mm-hmm. But those 150 Psalms are divided up by their own rendering into five different books. So I mm-hmm. want to talk about why that is. I want to talk about what they're doing in salvation history and why they're kind of compiled and put the way that they are. So they are deeper to us. And I think yeah. we can plumb the depths if we know 
not only what the context is, but that there is a context right, because I think right. people do forget that. And the kind of overarching umbrella theme that I want to keep coming back to as we go through these next six weeks is that the Psalms are Israel's story in song form. Mm-hmm. They're Israel's story in the song in, in the form of song. And so they're meant to remind us, they're meant to call us into a greater story that we're all meant to be called into, where we're going, where we've come from. And so at their heart, what the Psalms are is both poetry and prayer. They're poem, they're song, but they're also prayer. So they're meant to remind us who we are. They're meant to remind and awaken our memory mm-hmm. to the story that we've actually been called to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and JD, you might make fun of me, um, and if you do, that's fine. Did you ever read uh, the Bible translation called "The Message"? No, I've have never read the Bible translation though? called "The Message." Uh, yes, I have. The, the message gets made fun of sometimes. I'm it's, not making fun of this. Is an ecumenical show, my friend? I know I should have said that. I'm here because I have virtually no biblical literacy whatsoever. <laughs> I'm not even in the realm of knowing how to make fun of it, have, I, knowing I, so little. I don't want to make fun of it, but Good, sometimes people do. So okay. the the the. Message is what's called a paraphrase. Yeah, like a kind of transliteration of the whole thing where it's sort of written into it. It's a kind of common uh-huh. language. And uh-huh. it's done by a guy named Eugene Peterson, who's uh-huh. a Protestant pastor. He lives on a lake up in Montana now, kind that of living nice. the dream life. Yeah. yeah. And some of the ways in which he translates things and puts it into paraphrase is kind of corny sounding. But there is a certain – I turn to Eugene Peterson a lot because there is a certain brilliance and thoughtfulness that is required from taking all of scripture, including the obscure kind of strange passages from Habakkuk and Amos and all sorts of weird things and trying to figure out a way into which we can put them into common language. Yeah. Um, and there's been more than one time as a teacher that I've said, I wonder how Eugene Peterson translated that because I don't understand what scripture is saying. Um, and I, I sometimes will go back to his reflections on the Psalms, but I want to read actually something that, that he says about the Psalms. He has a book on the Psalms that I like. It's called Answering God. It's very simple, very straightforward. Again, he's not a Catholic, so I take things he says with a grain of salt. But uh, he says this. He says, The believing community at worship, at regular times, and in assigned places is the base of prayer. All of the Psalms are prayed in such communities. This is not obvious on the surface, and we're apt to think of a shepherd on a grassy slope or as a traveler on a dangerous road. Nevertheless, it is one of the assured results of devout research confirmed in the practice of Israel and the church. We are most congruent with the conditions in which the Psalms were produced and prayed when we pray together in a congregation. So I really like that quote. I think it's a beautiful reflection. And Eugene Peterson, coming from a Protestant tradition, um, understands in a, in, a, in a way that I think we as Catholics can even take it a step further that the proper home of the Psalms are within a congregation. And we would say that the proper place, the proper home, the originating point of the Psalms is in the liturgy. Right. And to the degree that we are able to, you know, as fathers, read them to our kids or take them into our own personal prayer life is as an extension of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. They live in the Mass. They exist in the Mass. And we're meant to actually receive them in that way and then go and pray with them on our own. And, and, and sort of by extension life. of the Mass exists probably in the churches. The, the sort of rest of the church's liturgical tradition, and especially it would seem to me the liturgy of the hours, the, Absolutely. the ancient prayer of the church, which is rooted in the Psalms. Which the is previous. liturgical. Right. And, and yeah. again, the church says this is the, this is the center in a certain sense of our worship, yeah. of, our, of our communal, congregational, Peterson would say, worship life. But and good, that's where they exist in Israel. And well. so what's good for us to know is that these are, as you say, the songs of Israel and the liturgical songs of Israel. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And so, and so why does the church, um, insist on returning constantly to this. St. Uh, Basil the Great, I really like St. Basil the Great, he talked about the, the Psalms taking the form of poetry or song 
for the particular reason that they become easier to digest that way. Yeah. And so if these are things that the, the Lord wants us to take into ourselves, lay upon our heart, as Psalm 119 says, it's just easier to do that with a song or a poem. Songs are easier to remember than speeches. Yeah. Poetry is easier to remember than prose, yeah. right, for example. And, and that's think, what God wants us for us to have these things inside of us. Yeah. Turn, yeah, right. I don't think most Americans, it's safe to say, could recite to you the Constitution or the preamble right. to the Constitution. Right. But many of us could probably sp- sing the Star Spangled Banner yeah, or the National right. Anthem, right? Yeah. Why? It's the same concepts, but songs are just easier to remember. I remember yeah. as, a, as a middle school or a junior high kid, I, for some reason, it was probably an assignment, and this came up because my kids were studying the same thing. I wrote like a, a rap song, and I'm not going to sing it, to the preamble of the Constitution, and to this day, year, you know, however many decades later, I still remember every word to the preamble of the Constitution because I put it in the form of song, and I had to remember it. Yeah. And so, again, it's, it's such a simple human thing, but this is why the Lord does it this way. The word psalmoi in Greek literally means the songs. Mm. So they're yeah, actually called the hymn book, the, the psalms. Do we know what they would have sounded like in the time of Jesus? Do we know ah. what these liturgical songs sound like? We do not, and that is one of the great mysteries of the Psalms. Mm. I, I think there's some that are sung in synagogues to this day, and maybe there's some resonance back uh-huh. to how they would have originally been sung. But we don't. There, there's actually a bunch of—the Psalms are, for as somewhat accessible or seemingly accessible as they are to folks, like we talked about, there's a whole lot of mystery to the Psalms. Yeah, that's really and interesting. I want to suggest a particular theory about why, why they're ordered the way that they are, but— Nobody's in 100% sure. Uh-huh. There's there's also a number of instruments that seem to be mentioned right. at the beginning of Psalms that we don't know what those are. Oh, and we don't wow. know what they sound like. And there's a lot of things that we just don't have anymore. And so there's something I think kind of beautiful to that, that we're left to sort of use our imagination to wonder what these sounded like. What are these instruments? What are these, you know, breathing marks that are put there? What, are that, what is that doing in yeah. the congregation? Yeah. And there's oh. things that we just simply don't know. Yeah. Which I kind of like. I like the mystery of that. Are those things... The breathing marks, the list of instruments, are those divinely inspired? Are they part of the inspirational text of the Psalms? I do not. That is a fantastic question. And JD, I don't, I don't know the answer. I'm, I'm hesitant to give you an answer because I'm sure there is one. Uh-huh. And I don't want you to get angry letters because I, mis- <laughs> I misspoke about what that is. Well, listeners, if you know, you can let us know. And maybe we'll be able to let you know in the next episode. But I just, I, yeah. you know, I would lo- it'd be really interesting to know. What's inspired here and, and, you know, what the limits of that are? Well, the reason I'm hesitating is that for the most part, you know, all of, all of the scriptures are inspired and right. without error, but things like chapter divisions are not. Those are, because those are like ours, right? I mean, the church yeah. has inserted subheadings and chapter things, like things and things yeah. like that over time to help know where to read them in the liturgy and think, verses and things like that. Now, the Psalms have a bit of a distinction because I, I believe it's safe to say, so when a Psalm says that it is a Psalm of David, right? I believe we have to take it for what it says, um, even though it's a heading. But I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay. Well, maybe we'll find out. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that, the notion of the Psalms being a Psalm of David. I mean, so, you know, the sort of traditional notion or the customary notion that people hold and then the Scripture tells us these are Psalms of David is that the Psalms were composed by David, the very same David who was David the shepherd, and then David the Goliath slayer, and then David the Saul fighter, and then David the king. Um, it's a good title. Those titles just on the fly. <laughs> those just on the fly, right? That's what I. Yeah, I write headlines, Scott. That's, that's what I. David the Saul fighter. You do you, write a mean headline. I. I think I'm going to try and get my son actually a David the Saul fighter action figure. He seems like a cool. <laughs> but um, yeah. but but then it's David the the poet. You know, he's one of the ones who sort of fits in. And so the sort of traditional sense in which the, the of the history of the Psalms is that they have Davidic authorship. Is that I don't know. Is that 
in fact, what our scholarship tells us is the history of the Psalms? Is that what we believe as Catholics? What, what, where do the Psalms come from, Scott? It's a, it's a wonderful. So there's 150 Psalms. 73 of those are attributed in some way, shape, or form to David. Okay. So many of them, certainly right. not all, but many of them. And even of those that uh, are attached to David, they have different sort of demarcations. Some of them are Psalms of David, so believed to have been written by David. And I see no reason to believe that they were anything other than what they say, that yeah. they were actually written by David. Many of them seem to be recounting specific moments in David's life as he's running from Saul, as he's hiding out in the wilderness, as he's, uh, his sin with Bathsheba is exposed, things like this. So uh, there are a lot of Psalms that I, I think the tradition says very strongly are probably written by David. There's others that seem to be in the spirit of David or for David or related to David that maybe are, you know, again, meant to be tied to the life of David, but perhaps not written by David, perhaps written by someone else. Um, some of the uh, the titles are just unclear. But yeah, many of them, I think, are certainly penned by David. I think there's a great uh, number of those 73 that are David's words. But even by their own definition, some of them just are meant to be in, in honor of David or thinking back to memory of David or something like this. There's also a bunch of uh, psalms. There are some psalms written by Solomon. Uh -huh. There's some that are actually attributed to Moses. So they, they oh, really wow. span a long period of time. I think there's three that are ascribed to Moses. Many of them are anonymous. What do we know about when those actually were put together and why? I mean, I presume it would have been by priests of the temple or other people of the temple for the purpose of temple liturgies. Yeah, I'm fascinated, but this is actually where I wanted to go next. Although these 150 Psalms are written over the course of salvation history, again, from Moses to David to um, sons of Korah to, to uh, you know Solomon, anonymous folks, all sorts of folks. Which is like, how long before Jesus did David live? Oh my goodness! A uh, thousand, roughly a thousand years, if I'm doing my math right. So the Syrian captivity was 722. Jerusalem was destroyed in 586. Oh yeah, I googled it and Google agrees with you. Roughly a thousand years, and you okay. were doing it. Well, because the, the Exodus was wow, about, how about that. Yeah, I was doing, trying to do the math. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, so the Davidic Psalms would have been composed about a thousand years before Jesus, and you're Something saying like that. in the even in the generations after that, there was still a composition of the Psalms. Yeah, presumably. But then how long before so, Jesus lived would they have come together? Okay, so this is, and this is again where we get the question of why do they show up in the way that they show up? Mm -hmm. So the best guess and the, the, the theory suggests that they were compiled the way that they look after what's called the Babylonian exile. And I think that's theologically really important. So again, they're, they're, they're either existing somewhere on, on scrolls or maybe an oral tradition that's being passed down for all of these thousands of years. The songs themselves. The songs themselves, yeah. probably being sung in, to various degrees in the liturgy. Mm -hmm. But then after the Babylonian exile, they take the form that they actually, uh, that we receive them. And they uh, show up in the five books, divide themselves into five books. And that moment in time is really important. Because it's in that moment of time that a lot of things start to happen. Uh, a lot of the wisdom literature comes together for Israel. Uh, presumably the, the books of maybe Kings and Chronicles are taking their final written form. And the reason all that actually matters is because all of Israel is asking a very specific question at that point. So they had fallen to grave sin. So God established the Davidic kingdom. He rose up David as a great king. David had his sin. He had his flaws. But God still works through him. Um, you know, Saul, the train wreck of a king before him, God sort of remedies through David. Uh, but then after David, the kingdom kind of begins to go off the rails. And there's a bunch of Davidic kings that, you know, persist after in Solomon, sin. right? Solomon himself falls into pretty grave yeah, sin. It's because true. of yeah. Solomon that the civil war happens mm. and the, 
the uh, the nation is split into two kingdoms. Yeah. It's because of his sin. Yeah. And then his sons perpetuate that and then everything else. And we have the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah that say, if you, good Lord, if we don't turn back, there's going to be disaster. And they're not listened to. They're ignored. People try to kill the prophets. And the kingdom is lost. And Jerusalem is destroyed in the year 586, 587. And the, the Shema, the presence of God, leaves the Yeah, temple. Ezekiel sees a vision of the, sh- uh, the Shekinah. The Shekinah, Shema thank means you. to hear. That, oh, that's yeah, the Shekinah. Important. Yeah, so, so sorry, the Shekinah. No, no, it's good. And then after that, people are always asking, will God's presence return? That becomes the big question. Well, two questions. They're asking the question of when is God going to come back? Mm-hmm. But they're also asking the question, the very real question of how the heck did we get here? Mm. How did things get so bad that we fell off the rails so dramatically that the presence of God would leave us mm. and we would lose the temple and our liturgy and the priesthood and all of these things. What happened that caused that? Mm-hmm. Which is the self-reflective question that the people of God ought always ask themselves in times of darkness or in times of sin. I think it's a question the church needs to be asking herself right now. Of, yeah. Man, there's been a lot of here? sin in the church. How did we get here? Yeah. Because to not ask that question is to doom yourself to repeat it, essentially, right? And Scott, I have a question about this time. So that's the sort of existential question that yes. Israel's asking. Yeah. When the temple is rebuilt, is, it, is there a practical context to the compo- compilation of the Psalms? When the temple is rebuilt, does there need to be a newly developed set of liturgical rubrics and resources? Did the Psalms get compiled because they're putting everything together for the practical question of how do we pray and how do we worship in the temple? It does seem that way. Okay. What it looked like before in what we call the first temple period, that's not clear. But this hymn book, we're putting together in the midst of this existential question of how we got here and and for the practical question of we have a new temple. Yes. How do we pray? Yeah, I, I think that's safe to say. Okay. I think that's reasonable to say. Okay. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And so the, the very structure of the Psalms, again, knowing that they were written, they were composed way prior to this, right. they're put together as a way of trying to deal with that question. of How do we deal with the world? Not, not only how do we look back and say, this is why the book of First and Second Kings has a particular darkness to it mm-hmm. because Israel is thinking back and saying, geez, how did we get here? Oh, it's because this king did this and then we didn't listen to the prophets in this way and all these yeah. things happened. Mm-hmm. They're written as a, as a highlight reel of all the worst of the worst. Yeah, it's like the Tarantino section of the Old Testament. <laughs> it is, yeah. but because it's dealing with a real question. Right. They're not trying to highlight, oh, well, there, surely there were some good things that these kings did. Right. That's fine, but we're not dealing with the question of how did... That, that's not helping us answer the question of how did we get to this We need to have place. a meditation of our, on our own sinfulness. Exactly right. Yeah. And the sinfulness of the kingdom and the kings. Um, the Psalms are, again, kind of doing that. And so they're meant to go back and look towards salvation history. And so what they do is they're organized in terms of, again, I've said five books. And if you're a good faithful Jew and something is organized in terms of five books, what are you automatically reminded of? The Pentateuch? Yeah, the, the first Pentateuch, five books of which we also call... You know this word. Torah. I'm to test you. Yeah, the Torah. So the Torah, right? And the Torah is is specifically refers to the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which form the foundation for all that God is going to do in the world. And so if you're a Jew and you see five books, it's like if you're an American and you see a red octagon. You're like, oh, that means stop. stop. Red octagons means stop for us. Uh-huh. Five books for a Jew means Torah. Uh-huh. It's just an automatic association. Mm-hmm. Or if we had in a church seven stained glass windows, we might think, oh, I bet these are going to be sacramental. Or no, something. G- yeah, good point. Yeah, that's a better, that's no, a no, deeper analogy. Yeah, no, each that, are good in their right. own way, I think, Scott. 
<laughs> Thank you. But that's right. So you're seeing, oh, there's a new Torah mm-hmm. or, or rather a new articulation of the Torah. So Torah, yeah, it can, it can mean specifically those first five books. But Torah also means, uh, in a generic sense, instruction. Mm-hmm. So Torah, I hear quick grammar crash course. Torah comes from a, a Hebrew verb called yara, Y-A-R-A-H. And yara literally means, and, and if you go through the, the linguistic dictionaries, they get kind of funny. One of the more specific definitions is to throw a javelin at something, which is actually my favorite one because it gets real specific. Yeah. But it, but it literally, yara is a verb that means to point at something, to throw at something, or literally to point a finger in a direction. And so Torah is the noun form of that. But it teaches us something about why these books exist in the first place. And, and in a certain sense, the word Torah became sort of shorthand for the whole Old Testament for the Jewish people mm-hmm. because this is God's instruction. These are the books that point the arrow toward two things. Number one, where we're supposed to go. But in a, in a very real sense, where we're not supposed to go as well. Why is the Old Testament so dark? Why is there so much sin? Why is there so much idolatry and polygamy and every bloodshed? Because a lot of the ways in which God instructs us is showing us the consequence of going the wrong way. You know, it's so funny that that's the way you frame it. And far be it for me to, to offer a yarrah in your direction. But, near, um, near be it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, you know, when I think about the Psalms, what I think about is, a context of the human condition of sin, but yes. what seems to me to be so consistent about them is so many of the Psalms land in the place of a recitation of God's presence and affirmation of God's presence and an expert, not all of them. And maybe only in certain books, maybe we'll talk about that, but yeah. it seems to me that the, one of the themes is not only there is sin and bad things happen and I am sad and I lament and the waters have come up to my neck, mm-hmm. but also I remember your promise. I abide in your promise and your presence. So there's this recollection Yes, you're, you're asking saying that the I'm questions a scripture that, scholar, but I've listened to two seasons of Sunday school. No, but you're asking the questions I've just, I hoped you would ask because okay. you're, you're thinking of the right, these are the, but you're thinking of the questions of Israel and mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're remembering the Psalms and you're saying, wait a second, but this reminds me of this, which I, I just think is beautiful. Um, so yeah, the, the five books refers to the Torah, the Torah's instruction. The Psalms are meant to, in a certain sense, imitate that they're, they're recapitulating that, but in a, in a new way, in a different way. And so there's different way scholars um, again, I want to be very careful that I'm giving you one particular point of view and a couple a couple of reflections on it. Your teacher Scholars, who comes from a place with a perspective. You you teach sure. from that perspective, and that is the notion of Sunday school is you're teaching us. So, it's but okay. it's a loose perspective because oh. I think it's safe to say no scholar can really peg down exactly what the structure of those five books is doing because there's not a firm consistency to it. There are certain themes to each of those five books, but the themes are, are not consistent within themselves. So there's 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 different ways of looking at it. But I'm I'm going to give you uh, our hymn books are centered often around our liturgical seasons. Is there is that one of the possible? It is not. It is People not. have suggested okay. that maybe that's a part of it. Okay, but I don't think you can back that up. People okay. have suggested that it is stages of the spiritual life, and mm-hmm. I think there's a part of that too. Mm. Um, I think I, I lean most heavily on it being, but again, not exclusively so. But I lean most heavily on it being a retelling of the story of salvation history oh, from the okay. point of view of the kingdom. So five books, which from the point of view of the kingdom of Israel, yes, recount in five chapters the story of salvation. Chapters, so to speak. Yeah, okay. but ch- chunks of Psalms. Yeah. And so they all move in a certain sense. And again, even this is not exclusively so. They move in a sort of general sense from from lament, from lamentation into praise. Mm. And I think even on a kind of umbrella level, you can sort of 
there's lots of different kinds of psalms. There's lots of different emotions that are conveyed in the psalms. But I think you could sort of maybe in an oversimplified way categorize all of them in some sort of lament or some sort of praise. Mm -hmm. Either, Lord, why are things the way that they are? Things are terrible. I'm miserable. My enemies are, are succeeding over me. Or I'm praising God for something. Or I see what God is doing in the world and I'm praising him for it. They all sort of fall more or less into those two categories. But one of the things you see, so we talked about the Psalms of David, right? Mm -hmm. In book one, there's a whole lot of Psalms of David. And mm -hmm. actually all but, I believe it's all but three are all Psalms of David. Oh, all the Psalms of David are not chunked together in one section. They're spread out. No, they are. They're all chunked together in there. In book one. But I mean, across the whole of the Psalms, there's this chunk of David's and then other chunks of David's along the way. They're most consolidated here. Okay. So most of the Psalms of David show up in book one and book two. Okay. So book one, again, it all but three of the Psalms and two of them, I'm going to argue next week, or I'm going to suggest next week that the first two Psalms are kind of a prologue to the whole thing. Uh-huh. Um, but other than that, all book one is all about David. Uh -huh. Book two is largely Psalms of David. But then if you read carefully toward the end of book two, they kind of taper off. Mm. And I think one of the things that's, that's being portrayed here or conveyed in the, the, again, the compilation after the exile is thinking back, man, do you remember the Davidic kingdom? Do you remember David? Do you remember when the kingdom was strong and we were we were doing what God wanted us to do in yeah. the world and we were being God's visible representation of his so – the, the kingdom – one of the things, J.D., that actually brought me back to a practice of the Catholic faith that made me understand what the church was was studying the kingdom of David in the Old Testament. Because I began to understand, if you read carefully the Old Testament, specifically 2 Samuel 7, is where we get what's called the Davidic Covenant. And this is where David is given all the promises by God of what the kingdom is supposed to be. And I think it's safe to say that the kingdom was meant to be a small s sacramental reality. Yeah. That people were supposed to look at the kingdom of Israel and see a visible manifestation of God's sovereignty over the whole world in a way that was particularly represented in a physical, tangible way in Israel. God is king of Israel, but God's king of everywhere. God's king of Egypt. God's king of Assyria. God's king of Denver. God's king of you know, Mesopotamia. He's king of all of these places, but his kingship is manifest in a particular, tangible way in Israel. There's and a the continuity is, there because yes. the church is the sacrament of our salvation. God's grace is everywhere. God's love is everywhere, and yet the church is the mediator of our grace. So you look to the church and you see the grace of God. So there's a there's a sacramental continuity between Israel and the and the church there. Take it a step further. Okay. Um, is God's presence here in this room right now with you and me? Yeah, two or more gathered. Yeah, we're yeah. gathered in His name. So we're two listeners here more. Yeah. yeah. So is that a metaphor though? I mean, is God really present here? Yeah. It's not a metaphor, right? No, I, right. I, I believe God is actually present. He's yeah. actually here. And if you go down the street to your pagan neighbor's house, is God present there in some way? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think a different way. It's not the same right. way that uh -huh. he's manifest here, but he's present. Yeah. And if we go up the street to the Catholic church, is God physically present? God is really church? present in the church in a, in a different way, in a sacramental right. way, it doesn't mean a real the, and true way. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean he's not, not present here. here, here or that, right. Yeah. But it's a different kind That's of right. presence. That's right. And that's a sacramental reality that's right. in the same way, by analogy, that God is king of Egypt. God yeah. is king of Assyria and Babylon and Mesopotamia. He's king over all the earth. Yeah. But that kingship is visibly manifest 
in the king of Israel in this place. And so book one, we remember that. So, so book one, we remember that. But again, to, to know what it's doing, I think we have to have a sacramental sense of the kingdom. Yeah. Because if we miss what the kingdom is, then we're going to miss what the Psalms are trying to point us to. Yeah. And so they're saying, this is what God wanted. And so we know the story and we know that the kings of Israel often fell, even often fell. Even David, who was the best, he's the best one they had. Yeah. He committed adultery, framed a guy, committed murder, right. had a child out of wedlock. I mean, he's the right. best one. And yeah. this is pretty rough. So we know, and, and the Psalms assume that you know the story. This isn't, you know, a, a romanticizing of the past. You know, there's a David canon. I'm a canon lawyer by trade, as you might know. I do. Know. And there's a canon which specifically prohibits you from killing someone's spouse in order to marry them. And it is the David canon of the, of the code. It's funny that we need to. Right. Point that <laughs> At any rate. No, that's, that's okay. Good. So I book was, two, book one is the so book one kingdom. and book two are really about David. Yeah. In book two, you see it begin to taper off uh-huh. and toward the end, there's more and more songs of lament. The Psalms get slightly darker as yeah. we're remembering the downfall, the descent of the Davidic kingdom. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is where the, the categories aren't strict. Yes. There's most Davidic Psalms in book one, but there's also some Psalms of lament in book one. There's also Psalms of God. Where are you? The waters have reached my neck kind of Psalms. So, Again, it's not exclusive, but there's a whole lot of Psalms about David. There's a whole lot of kingdom Psalms. There's a whole lot in book two, but then they taper off and it gets dark. And it's meant to remember the downfall of the kingdom, which leads us into book three, which is meant to remember the exile. When we lost the kingdom, when we lost the temple, when we were taken away and things got really, really dark. So book three is particularly dark because it's meant to reflect and remind us of this period of exile. Which sounds like the entirety of salvation history, but it's not for the mind of the Jews who compiled these. Because then you get to book four. And in book four, I think if there's a theme to be pulled out, it's the theme that Yahweh is king. So if book one and book two are all about the Davidic kingdom, which is meant to be a sacramental representation of God's kingship, we lose it. We lament it in book three. But then book four is this reminder of, okay, well, we lost that. We don't have the temple or we didn't have the temple. We lost the kingdom. But God is still king. The reality to which the visible manifestation pointed to hasn't changed. And you get a lot of psalms. I think it's kind of fascinating. You get a lot of psalms about nature in this part of the Psalter. Mm. Because if you imagine Israel in exile, if you imagine Israel in Babylon without the temple, without the priesthood, without the kingdom, what do you do? And I think it's, it's, it's the analogy. Where do you look for the presence of God? Well, it's not. Yes, where do you look for the presence of God? But how do you be? So think of it as a Catholic. And, and I actually, I was reflecting a lot. I, I did a lot of meditation on book four during COVID because how do you be a Catholic when you can't go to mass, right. when you can't access the sacraments, right. when you can't go to church, when there's no priests, they're right. all, you know, quarantined as well. How do you do it? What do you have left? And the Jewish people were, were forced for much longer than we were to ask the question, wow, how do you practice Judaism if we have no priests or temple or sacrifice or liturgy right. or, or the king? Right. What do we have left? Well, we have two things. And the Jews came to the conclusion of, well, we have the Torah. So you see a lot of Torah Psalms about this, that we still have God's word. Yeah. This is actually, by the way, where the synagogue tradition comes from. Oh. And synagogues emerged after the temple was destroyed uh-huh. and they had not rebuilt it yet to say, yeah. well, we don't have the temple. We don't have sacrifice or priesthood. What do we have? We have the scriptures. Yeah. So we can synagogos, we can gather around them yeah. and we can meditate and we can pray and we yeah. can be taught by these rabbis, these teachers, they're not priests, but they can help guide us. Well, you know, um, like I, I was talking recently with uh, some friends who spent some time serving um, in, uh, in a, on military bases in Afghanistan, yeah. mil- army guys, I guess, yeah. and they would only have mass every couple of weeks. And so it emerged organically that they had, by, they 
came together to read the Sunday readings effectively. And in a certain way, a catechist, not a duly appointed catechist, yeah. but a, a, a catechist who was effectively the religious guy among them, sort of became the kind of teacher, yes. a synagogue submerged, yeah, right? Yeah. That's exactly what happened, though. Yeah. That was exactly the, the same, maybe more formalized process that synagogues come from. Mm. And then after the temple was rebuilt, the Jews basically said, hey, this isn't a bad thing to keep going. And yeah. part of the reason that we fell was because maybe this was too distant a reality and it mm-hmm. wasn't in our neighborhoods and our everyday because life. So let's keep the synagogue. When you go, when you would go to the temple to first sacrifice three times would, a year, three usually. times a year, that would not be preceded by a liturgy of the word and, um, like the kind of f- Christian, not for the average folks formation in scripture. And no, uh, okay. Not for average folks. The priests would do some of those things. And so one's but, religion, one could have the stories at home, but one's religion could become cultic without having a kind of formational component to it. And that does seem to be the reflection of Israel post exile mm. is that that was part of our problem. So let's try to mitigate that. And that's what the, the Pharisees and, and, and you know, in a certain way, it's interesting. One of the points about liturgical renewal in the second Vatican council is Many people have lost a connection to scripture, to scripture, right, to the word of God, and therefore a way of emphasizing in liturgy, hearing the word of God and hearing reflection on it it is an important part of our Christian worship and our Christian formation. So this seems to be a theme among God's people over and over and over. That's exactly, there's a thing here in in the Archdiocese of Denver called the Catholic Biblical School, Mm -hmm. which I taught for years ago, which was a fruit of that call from the Second Vatican Council that said we need to have a renewal of our understanding of scripture of the Bible, both in our lives all the time, which yeah, is why exactly we're doing right. Sunday school, and but the then liturgy. in the liturgy itself. That's yeah. right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, so in a certain sense, again, not exclusively so, but book four is, is getting us to think about where is God? Yeah. If we don't have the normal trappings of the life that we knew, where do we find him? We find him in the scripture. We find him in Torah. We find him in creation, right? He's still present. And, you know, as, as the, the rhythms of creation are consistent and unchanging and the sun hits every corner of the earth, so does the Torah, you know? So, again, that's why I was spending a lot of prayer time there during COVID yeah. because it was asking the same question. And so that's what we want. Like, look, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's the thing I said I want to give my kids. That's what yeah, the that's Psalms right. give to us. That's what I hope right. listeners, maybe we can give you a little bit in this podcast is like, wow, I'm in a period of my life, which I know there's a place in scripture, which speaks to it and which I can pray with. And that yeah, seems right. like such a gift. Yeah, that's right. That's so right. Let's just talk about book five a little bit and then talk about what the format will look like for our episodes. coming. Yeah. Up. And so book five is, is fascinating because book five, all of a sudden, you see Davidic psalms reemerge and a bunch of psalms of David show up. And so the idea is book five is more forward-looking, that now we've, we've, we've seen that God does not change. We've seen that God is here, but now we're looking forward to a time where there will be a restoration and a renewal of the kingdom. And you see kingdom psalms emerge. You see Messiah, messianic psalms begin to emerge because God is going to do something again in the future. And so again, if you consider the point in history where they're looking back, they're trying to reckon the present, but they're also looking forward. All of good catechesis is past, present, future thinking of what God has done in the past, bringing that into the present for the sake of our future, where God wants to lead us. It's doxological, right? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And the Psalms are doing all of those things. And so book five is anticipatory. That God will do something in the future. That God is going to do something in the future. And listeners, here's the good news. We too are going to do something in the future <laughs> because um, in this episode, we have been talking a little bit about the structure of the Psalms, where they come from and how they're structured. And in our next five episodes, we're going to spend time with each of those books. In each episode, our friend and lector extraordinaire, Ed Condon, will read us two psalms from each book, uh, maybe three, maybe one. Um, but 
Oh, Scott's now telling me four. We'll read us one to four Psalms from each book, and then um, we'll spend some time um, diving into each of the books of the Psalms to better understand it and, and hopefully to be better be able to pray with it. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that, Scott. I think that's going to be a great thing. And listeners, I hope that you will join us for this exciting Psalm season of Sunday School. Thanks, everybody. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, joined by our Sunday School teacher extraordinaire, Dr. Scott Powell. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back next week.